0: How many of you are Walmart shoppers? You got your, your Walmart story? There's all kinds of Walmart stories, and I don't shop there. I don't have a whole lot of stories, but I do have a story today. Now, the story doesn't begin with Walmart. It actually begins with the makers of peanut, uh, uh, peanut butter. Yeah, Peter Pan peanut butter. It's kind of a tongue twister there. See, in the year 2007, there was a salmonella breakout in their plant, Conagra plant down in Georgia, and over 600 people across 47 different states got sick, and so they had to remove from the shelves in all the stores Peter Pan peanut butter. At the same time, Walmart began to remove their great value peanut butter off the shelf, and the secret was out, that the maker of Walmart's peanut butter was the same manufacturer that makes Peter Pan peanut butter, and that's why the two taste alike. (laughs) It happened again in 2015. Sarah Lee had an issue with bread and pulled it off their shelves, and guess what? Great value bread came off the Walmart shelves. You may not know this, but a lot of the major manufacturers make things and put them under lesser labels and sell them at less than half the cost. You can go to Aldi Foods, and you can find General Mills cereal under the label of Millville. You can go to Costco and get their diapers, which are made by Huggies. I mean, you can go to a lot of these stores, and they have what's our generic brands that sell for much less. But we trust the brand names. We trust the, the big names and the advertisers, and we question the little guy, and especially if they don't have commercials on TV. And yet, oftentimes, it's the very same product, just under a different label. See, we live in a culture of labels, and labels, in our minds, attach a lot of value to things. And labels aren't always good, but we, pa- we, we put labels on people on their race, on their nationality and their background, their education, their wealth, their political views, whether they're unborn or preborn or unborn or born, uh, whether men or women, you know, sexual preferences and all this—we put labels on people, and that becomes their identity. And we treat people different according to these different labels. But I want to tell you that God doesn't do that. God is the manufacturer of all people. And you may put a different label on someone. It doesn't change the fact that they are made in the image of our God and have dignity and inherent value simply for that reason. Amen. And if you look at the life of Jesus, he brought this into full focus because Jesus was doing things that was culturally Unacceptable. He was going to the people that were the outcasts, the lepers and the lame and the broken. He would talk to the widow. He would spend time with the children. He would mingle with the Samaritans and the Gentiles, people that were off limits to others, people who were told, don't go around them. They've got cooties. They're bad. They're they're going to influence you in a negative way. Jesus says, no, I know. I, I made them all. I love them all. I treat them with dignity and respect. And he calls us... To do the same. He calls us as believers to treat everyone with dignity and respect, especially within the church. And this is so timely in our culture because I believe over the last couple decades in our country, we have accentuated labels, we have accentuated uh, smaller groups within the, the, the big of our culture and, and treating them in different ways. And then by doing so, we've actually fractured our culture into a lot of different camps. And we're kind of pitted against one another in all these different areas. And the, and the, the um, division within our culture has never been greater in my lifetime. And it's because we've been putting labels on people and treating them according to their labels. Scripture tells us not to do that. And it says to erase those, to don't look at the label. You're not more valuable because of your rank, your age, your gender, your nationality. It's not how Jesus taught us. And if we go through the book of James, we find that James is talking to believers in a lot of different areas about living out their faith. He says, you guys say you believe in Jesus, but it doesn't look like it. The way you talk, the way you handle problems, the, the way you respond to needs, it doesn't look like you're any different than anybody else. And he's calling us to rise up and to be mature in our faith. Don't just say you believe, show it. And this is a great passage to challenge all of us to, to live a life that reflects that we truly believe and follow Jesus Christ. And there's two reasons we're going to get into James chapter 2 that tell us why we shouldn't be partial toward people, why we don't play favorites, why we don't put labels on people and treat some as better than others. And he says, number one, doing so follows the example of Christ. We're going to see that as we start chapter two of James. He says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, hey, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which He's promised to those who love Him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? I mean, picture some Sunday, let's say in our culture, one Sunday, this, this vehicle pulls up and it's, it's a big truck and it's an old one and things are hanging out the tailgate of the truck and, and a whole host of people come out of there in their blue jeans and they're tattered and they're tattooed and they come walking in and you go, oh man, it looks like the Beverly Hillbillies just showed up. And then on this side of the building, a limousine pulls up and out walks the Kardashians. Yeah, well, let's, say, let's pick someone different, Okay. <laughs> Okay, how about the Manning family? Okay, the Manning family. So the Manning family pulls up there. We go, the Mannings are here. Oh, my goodness. Roll out the red carpet. We run over there. We forget the family there. We don't know who those people are. And, And we don't really care if they stay in our church. But, man, the Mannings. I mean, to say you have the Mannings in your church, I want a photo with those guys. He says, don't do that. Don't do that. That's not the example of Christ. That's not the faith you belong to. He says it's not the faith of Christ. Not, not saying that's not what Jesus believes. He says it's not the faith, meaning the, the way of Christ. See, faith is believing in Jesus. The faith is is this whole body, this whole way of life that we've adopted as Christians. That is the faith. When someone says, what's your faith? They're not always asking, like, what do you believe? They're asking, Are you, do you follow the way of the, the Baptists, the, the way of the Catholics? Do you follow the way of the Mormons? What is it? What's your faith? Meaning your kind of denomination, your school of, of thought, your way of life. The way of Christ is different than the world's. And he, he jumps right off the bat by using a word that I think says something powerful. He says, brothers, brothers. Immediately reminding them of who they are. You are connected into a family that welcomes people of all different races, all different ages, all different economic classes. You know, all these are, are one in Christ. We've all become family. It's your primary identity, a son or daughter of the Most High God. That's the label God puts on you. See, Jesus welcomes each one of us as family. Family. I remember when I became family. I, I grew up in a dysfunctional family. Jerry, if you're watching, yes, that includes you. So, so we, were, we were a dysfunctional family. A lot of fighting, a lot of tension. You know, dad was out of control sometimes. And then I became a Christian and became part of this huge family that's also dysfunctional and bizarre at times. But the difference, my Father in heaven is perfect. Amen. That's the difference. People are kind of the same. God's different. My Father's different. He treats us different. See, there are differences within each member of the family. Siblings can have differences, but that is not your primary identity in the kingdom. Your primary identity is a son or daughter of the Most High God. You know, I've heard people complain, and criticize the church, saying it's the most segregated place in the world on Sunday mornings. You know, in some places, probably true. You walk into a church and it's all homogenous. It's all a bunch of older white people, or it's all a bunch of African Americans, or it's all Hispanic. Um, but I would tell you this. I am so proud that this church is such a mix of people. You've got, you've got people who, are, who run businesses, and you've got people um, in the military, and you've got people who are students and single parents and married. You've got uh, newborns, and you've got older ones in their 90s. Uh, we've got people from the Philippines, from Guam, uh, from Mexico, from Canada. Oh, Canada, yeah, Canada too. I'm um, All these different places around the world, and it's beautiful. People with all the, all the variety because that's what the church ought to be a mix of people. Nobody gets to be a, a, a favored status in the kingdom based on that, that label. See, this is the description Paul reminds the church of in Galatians chapter three. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, some people would look at that and say, see, you're no longer Greek or Jew, and you're no longer man and woman, you lost your gender, and you're not slave or free, We're free the slaves. He doesn't say that. Actually, all these things remain. Men are still men. Women are still women. Greeks are still Greeks. Jews are still Jews. Uh, Slaves are still slaves, and owners are still owners. But he says, "How you treat each other, though—that's the thing. You're one. You're one in Christ. You don't have a favored status because you're a man, or because you're a Jew, or because you're you're an owner. No. We're all one in Christ." There's an African-American pastor named Raleigh Washington, and he says something, just this brings it down to reality. He says, you know, when I was born, I was born black, and I grew up, I grew up black. When I went out in the cold, I was still black. When I went out in the sun, I was still black. He says, someday I'm going to die, and I, I really think I'm still going to be black. He says, you white folk, you're born pink, and you grow up white, you go out in the cold, and you turn blue, you go in the sun and you turn red, and when you're sick, people say you look green, and when you die, you turn purple, why in the world am I called the color person? I like that. Yeah, you like that, Richard? God gave us color. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's beautiful. But you know what he sees beyond the skin? Exact same things. Heartache. Fear, anxiety, sin, guilt, shame, brokenness. Doesn't matter what's on the outside, we're all the same on the inside. Jesus loves us all, wants us to be family. That's why he's not partial in who he chooses. We see in the Gospels, Jesus going and spending time with the people, the culture, wouldn't spend time with. In fact, he got criticized for it. Why in the world are you hanging around these tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners, Jesus? And the kids, tell them to get away. And those Jews and Gentiles, by all means, forget about them. But Jesus went to all of them. And I'll tell you, that was really hard for his apostles to change their upbringing because get this, they were with Jesus for three years, watching this on a daily basis. And when the church launched in the book of Acts and Jesus is in heaven, these guys were told to go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth can't get out of Jerusalem. It's like they will not leave the city. It's like there's something in them that won't let them go to those other people. And it takes a few years before they actually go out. And the only reason they go out is not because the church sent them, it's because persecution came and drove them out. And they go out into Samaria, and all of a sudden those people hear the gospel, and boom, they respond. And then they go to the Gentiles. In fact, the story of how it got to the Gentiles is really interesting. You can read about it in Acts chapter 10. But there's a man there in Caesarea, he's a Roman, his name is Cornelius, and he's been looking on the outside to the Jewish people and say, I like your God, and I, I want to follow your God. So he prays to their God, he actually helps poor people because of their God, yet he's not part of their family yet, because they're not accepted. And so um, God sends an angel and says, hey, Go, uh, says, I've, I've watched you. I see your heart. Go send someone to get Peter in Joppa. Now, Peter is the lead apostle in the church in Jerusalem. And, and Peter's a very spiritual man. He goes up on the roof of a building to pray. And while he's praying, he gets his vision. Remember, he's hungry. And on this vision is this sheet with all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and other um, animals. And his voice says, kill and eat. And he goes, ho, ho, no, no, no. Some of those animals are unclean. It doesn't mean they're they're like dirty birds. It just means they're ceremonially unclean. Our people don't eat those things. We don't eat that kind of meat. And the voice says, no, no, kill and eat. No, no, really, seriously, I don't eat that kind of stuff. I made them all. They're not unclean. It's okay. I love the fact that God didn't put a bunch of vegetables on on that sheet and just say, you know, all the vegetables are good, but not the meat. He goes, the meat. Good, so for carnivores like us can say, like, good, I like, I like meat. So uh, he never eats the meat. It's just a visual because Peter's now processing, what in the world is God? He's saying something really important. Anytime something's in a, the third time, it's really important to God. So he's pondering this, and then there's a knock on the door. Uber. Oh, P- Peter's got a driver down there. Of course, there's no drivers. I'm just kidding. But it's like an Uber driver shows up there, says, Peter, get in the car. Peter goes, I think I know what's going on here. Okay. So he gets in with these strangers, goes down to Caesarea. When he gets there, Cornelius has gathered his whole family and his best friends, and they're all waiting, waiting with bated breath saying, what's this apostle going to say? God's going to say something really profound through him just for us. And Peter gets in the room and says, you know, guys, come on, we all know people like me don't mingle with people like you. Good way to build credibility, Right. He goes, it's not the custom that we do this. However, this shows the change of his heart. This is what he says to them. Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And as he goes on to preach even more, even a surprise to Peter, the Holy Spirit falls on all these people. And they start speaking in other languages, and there's great joy in the room. And Peter stands back, and he's got a, he goes like, oh, my goodness, this is like Pentecost. This is what I experienced on the day of Pentecost. Certainly, God is telling me and all of us that he's accepting those people just like he accepted us. So he says, hey, guys, you guys should get baptized right now because you are part of this family. And it caused an uproar in the whole church, and Peter actually had to go to this big council and say, hey, what's going on here? All these Gentiles coming in. This isn't good. And they finally said, you know what? God's doing something pretty amazing here. God loves them. He's sending us to them. God shows no partiality. He loves the world in the broad sense, but He loves us individually. I say that because sometimes we can say things like, I love all people. Um, It's like saying, I love dogs. There's a lot of dog lovers, right? You get around a dog. You just love dogs. But, but sometimes there's like a dog you really love. You, you, you choose that one to be your dog. So you go to the Humane Society or you go to a breeder and you get all these puppies and you look even at the puppies and there's this one that somehow you go, that's the one. That's the one for me. That's the one for my son or daughter. That one. And I think God sometimes, he loves the whole world, but one at a time, he's choosing individuals. There was a point in time when he chose me. There was a point in time when he chose you. And if you've ever, never felt chosen, I want you to know, God is looking any day now to choose you. He wants you to be part of his family. You know, sometimes people who are adopted feel like they're second class, like, you know, if only I was just born into your family. But any parent knows if you've adopted, I don't look at you that way. I treasure you as a son or daughter. In fact, I chose you. The other kids, I got stuck with them. (laughs) I didn't even know if I was having a boy or girl. But you, man, I went after you. And I came across this this beautiful necklace that I think, these parents get this necklace to give to their adopted child to remind them, hey, if you ever doubt my love for you, remember that, chosen. Now, you may be someone that says, Pastor, how do I know God's chosen me? You know when you hear the gospel and something starts to speak in your heart. Sometimes it's this leap, like, oh my, he really loves me. Sometimes you're broken in, down into tears. Something's stirring within you. It reminds me when Paul was writing this letter to the um, Thessalonian church, a group of believers in the city, and he said, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he's chosen you. How do we know that? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You knew in your heart He was your day. If you're chosen by God, he says, you are rich, not according to the worldly standards, but you are rich in faith, rich in God's love. And then he warns the believers, you know, when you favor that rich person, you need to be real careful because they're using you. Because those people, they're dishonoring the name of Christ. Those who require and insist on special treatment dishonor him. Chuck Swindoll, who's a great Bible preacher, uh, he, he started off his adult life in the Marines, and he was stationed in Okinawa. He says that uh, they would go to church or chapel services, and, and they'd have different pastors preaching, but they had one guy who was truly born again, dynamic preacher, and it filled the place uh, on Easter. Now, at this, in this chapel, there was a, a section of chairs up in front that he says was for the general and his aides. And usually, typically, after... The service began, about five minutes in, the back doors would open, and the general would walk down the middle aisle with his aides, and they would sit in the very front row. So people just knew, don't sit there, that's where the general sits. But on this one occasion, it was Easter, and the place was filling up pretty full. In fact, there was, there was Marines at the door trying to get in, and so the pastor just told them, hey, wherever there's an open seat, seat them. We got to get them in here. Well, five minutes into the service, guess who shows up? The general. And he looks around and there's no empty seats and there's a private sitting in his seat. And he turns around and leaves. And three months later, that chaplain was reassigned. Those who believe that they should be treated better than others because of their title, their age, their wealth, their length of church membership, any of those reasons, he says, they're dishonoring the name of Christ. In fact, he uses a stronger word than that. He says, They blaspheme the name of Christ. Blaspheme is, is the kind of thing you do when you drag someone's name through the mud. You are doing true dishonor to the name of Christ when you expect, expect special treatment. Because look at, look at my son Jesus, who came to this earth, and what did he do? He took on the very nature of a servant, did not go around in a flowing robe saying, I'm Jesus, give me special treatment. Never did that. He was humble. That's who we're to be like. You know, uh, I'm glad Southwest Airlines is here in the springs. because one of the features of, of uh, Southwest Airlines that's unique among all airlines is open seating, which means they don't have first class and, and coach. Everything's for everybody, which bothers some people and makes a lot of other people really happy. See, if you've gone on most planes, when you, when you get on a plane, there's these big wide seats up front, I don't know if, if the people who have more money are fatter or if, why they just get the bigger seat, but they get big seats. And I'm always trying to get my luggage through, bumping those people, and, I, and sometimes I are just worried like I'm going to knock over their wine glass, a real glass with wine in it, and the fresh-baked cookies they're eating there, and I'm going by feeling kind of embarrassed as I'm going way back there by the bathroom. That's where I'm going to sit, but I said, man, someday I'd like to, to be up there. But those people, there, they don't even look up to me, they're just engrossed in whatever they're doing. They paid more to be treated special. Well, they don't do that at Southwest Airlines, and they don't do that in the kingdom of God. It's open seating. Everybody's treated the same. You don't get special status. There's no partiality in the kingdom. So we we honor and give dignity to people because it's the way of Christ. It's how we follow the example of Christ. But it's also how we fulfill the law of Christ. He goes on to say, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. He said, if you really, really are fulfilling the law of Christ, which is to love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. He calls it the royal law, the supreme law, that there's no higher law than this in Scripture. And this law comes from the king, Jesus. That's our king's desire for us. Our king's will is that we love others. One time Jesus was asked, what's the greatest law in the book? Because in the Jewish mind, they went through the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and said, we, we found 613 of them. Of, of those, what's, what's at the top of the list? And this, this was Jesus' answer. He, he said, I, I'm going to make it really simple. It's just these two things. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Tells us who, who to love, God and others. How to love, love God with everything you've got. Love others as you love yourself. He says the second command is like the first they are two sides of the same coin. Loving God and loving other people go together. You don't get to pick one or the other. You can't say like, well, Jesus says this is the first one, and then way below that is the second one. He goes, no, 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 no. They're, they're side by side. Second one's like the first. In fact, if you, do them, if, you, if, you, if you do the second one well, you're succeeding in the first one. But you, you cannot just say you love God and then treat other people poorly. It doesn't work that way. In fact, John, when he wrote his, his letter, 1 John chapter 4, he says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God, get this, must also. Underline, must also. It's not optional. Must also love his brother. Loving others is how we demonstrate love for God. In fact, Jesus then, um, before he was crucified, washed his disciples' feet, and he actually raised the bar even higher. He says, "I'll tell you, really, if you want to boil it down to one thing, it's this." He said, "Love one another as I have loved you." Sometimes you're not good at loving yourself. Let's let's forget of using yourself as the standard. I'm the standard. I'm the same standard for everybody. Love one another as I have loved. How did he love us? Not only did he wash feet, he went to a cross and gave himself. So that's, that's the bar. That's the bar we're living up to. Jesus on the cross, dying, loving, saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Loving people who hated him, spit on him. He says, that's the standard. How are you doing with that? How are you doing? How are you doing at loving people like Jesus did? He says, that's the bar he set for us. And he says, if, uh, by, all, by this, all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You know, it's amazing. From that point on, never again in the Bible is anyone commanded to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not that they shouldn't. It's just that the emphasis got placed on the practical. You better love people because you don't love God if you don't love people. Because it's so easy for us to say, man, I love God, I love going to church, I love worshiping, I love praying, love digging in the Word. (sighs) People get on my nerves. Oh, they drive me crazy. I wish they'd just get out of my life. I just want to be with God. When I get to heaven, it's just going to be me and God. Um, i got a big surprise for you. Going to be a lot of other people there. And they're going to say, hey, bro, hey, sis. (laughs) And you're going to go, oh, my goodness, they're here again. Yes, get to love him now. You're going to love him forever. You're going to be with us for a long, long time. You guys have heard of, uh, probably a lot of you, Mahatma Gandhi. About 100 years ago, he was a very influential man, not only in India, but in uh, the rights of people, human rights across the world. Because what really bothered him in India was a thing called the caste system, C-A-S-T-E. And what they did in the caste system in India was people were born into a level of, of life And they were treated according to that level. Some were treated better than others. And that lowest group, well, they were called untouchables. The untouchables. And if you're born an untouchable, you don't get out of that. That's you. That's your lot in life. You're stuck in that system. And this really bothered him. He says, this is so unfair. This is not right. And he began reading the Gospels and said, and it came to this conclusion, maybe the solution to all this is what's taught in this book from Jesus. So he writes in his autobiography that early in his life, he decided to go visit a church. He was going to become a Christian. That was his intent. I'm going to go to that church. I'm going to talk to the pastor and become a Christian. He never got to the pastor because an usher cut him off. And as he tried to enter the church to find a seat, told him to leave and that he needed to go find his own people to be with. And Gandhi writes... If Christians have caste differences also, I might as well remain a Hindu. What a loss of someone saying, I want to get to know your Jesus. And you go, hey, you're not one of us. Get down the road, Jack. See, playing favorites breaks the law. You may say, well, I've never committed adultery. Not committed murder, not physically not physically killed anybody. I've wanted to. Or maybe I've verbally slashed someone to pieces, but I've never actually killed anybody. And James says, you know, if you show partiality, you break the law. And whoever breaks the law at any point has broken it. It's like a piece of glass. You broke it. You can break it through envy and through lying and through dishonoring your parents and all these, all the Ten Commandments, you know, in there. You break it at one point. He says, you've broken it all meaning you've crushed the heart of God. You've dishonored him. You're a violator. And you know this commandment to love wasn't something new that God came up with. It goes way back to the Old Testament, to the book of Leviticus. That's the very first statement of it. And these are people who got rescued out of Egypt. They're being brought through the desert to the promised land. And God says to them this through Moses, you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. You know those strangers that are kind of accompanying you? Treat them as part of the family. And you shall love him as yourself for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Those outsiders, treat them as family. You know I've watched and, and heard all these arguments. It's so sad, this immigration debate in our culture. I don't blame people wanting to come here. I don't blame anyone who wants to leave a a place of dep- depression or oppression, who's, who's walking hundreds of miles, gathered all their belongings, made great sacrifices, done some very risky things to get into this country. And it's such a shame that our politicians have made it political when really we should love the immigrant. We're called to love the immigrant. We don't need to give them privileged status. We don't need to treat them better than those who've come through legally and gone through all the things. There needs to be a system for bringing them in just like everybody else, give them the opportunity to earn things like everybody else. I think that's fair. I think that's decent. But we've turned them into pawns and and things and and pictures to promote political agendas and it's so sad. And honestly, as far as I'm concerned, I don't care as much what the government does as what we do. What we do as individuals, because it's up to us to follow the royal law and love them. See, I I think so often in our society, we try to overcompensate. Like, we're not gonna be partial to them, so we're gonna be extra favoring to them to kind of compensate for for some other things from the past or what they've experienced. And then we tip the scales, it's like, oh, come on. You're going to tip the scales and show favoritism. Now you're riling up a whole group of other people. And we do this with racial issues, like we're going to pay for sins of people from hundreds of years ago. What if we all just drew a line in the sand and said, hey, how about from this day forward, everybody, regardless of their age, regardless of their nationality, regardless of their gender, regardless of their skin color, we're going to treat them equal. We're going to give them equal opportunity. We're going to to give them equal pay. We're we're going to give them equal dignity and respect. Wouldn't that solve a lot of things in our culture? Mm. That's the way of Christ. That's what he's getting at here. God loves every single person. And he says how you treat others is going to come back and boomerang because it's going to be how you're treated. He says, speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to one who's shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. He says, how you treat others, it's going to come back one day and either bless you or haunt you. A great example of this is the owner of the Phoenix Suns and the Phoenix Mercury. Now, you guys might not be sports fans, but it was big, big news this week. This man who has been the owner for, for about two decades, has has a history of, of racist and sexist comments to employees. It finally came to the attention of the NBA commissioner and they addressed it this week by giving him a $10 million fine and banning him from going to any game for the next year. And this man who thought he was privileged, thought he was above the law, is now suffering for the violations of that moral law. Jesus said, whatever you wish that others would do for you, do also for them, for this is a law and the prophets. If you show mercy... Mercy will be shown to you. If you are partial and judgmental, it'll come back one day, this life or the next life, and you'll pay consequences for that. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus is reaching out to one of those that's classified in the biblical biblical times as not as worthy. It's Matthew who's a tax collector, despised by the people because he was a cheater. He was a stealer. He was a thief. Causing people to pay way beyond what they needed to pay for taxes. And yet Jesus comes to Matthew and says, Follow me. And then he goes into Matthew's house where he's surrounded by other tax collectors, and the Bible says, Sinners. People classified in that culture by the religious leaders as not worthy of God's love. And Jesus is there mingling with them, and these Pharisees are watching from outside the house going, This is not right. If that man's from God, he would know he shouldn't be in that house. And Jesus says, Hey guys, you ever gone to a hospital? What kind of people are in that hospital? Sick people or healthy people? Of course, sick people. Yeah, the sick need the doctor. And I've come not to call perfect people to follow me. I've come to cause the wayward, the rebellious, the sinners to follow me. And then he quotes an Old Testament verse that says this, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Because you guys are all about sacrifice. Your your animal sacrifices, your giving of alms, your offerings to God, your devotion to Him, your worship of Him, so-called, but you're dishonoring it by the way you're treating other people. And you'd be far better off if you made sacrifices of time and reputation and energy for the sake of showing mercy to somebody else. That's what I desire. I desire mercy, not your sacrifices. Don't put people in this class or that class. I read a story about a, a lady named Sally who was in seminary. She had a great professor named Dr. Smith, and Dr. Smith usually taught these very creative object lessons that they never forget. And one day, she experienced one she'd never forgotten. He had each of the students draw a picture of somebody in their life that really wounded them, somebody that hurt them, someone that uh, had done something um, bad against them. And so all these students drew pictures. One girl drew a picture of a Um, a girlfriend who stole her boyfriend. Another drew a picture of their little brother. This gal, she drew a picture of a friend who had wounded her. And then he had them come up, and he had this big target at the front of the room and says, put the picture on the target up there. And they put all these pictures on this big target, and then he had them line up behind the line and uh, gave them darts. and says, go ahead and throw the darts. So they started throwing darts at the picture, seeing if they hit the one they put up there. And some of them were getting really into it. I mean, they were firing these darts hard, like just whipping them in there and penetrating into the corkboard behind it. And after a period of time, he says, okay, that's enough. Go ahead and take your seats. And he looked up there, and these just pictures were all just shredded and everything. And one by one, he took them down. And then looked at the target there, which looked pretty bad. But then he did something real shocking. He peeled the target off the wall, and there was a very large picture of Jesus mm. with ripped face, with pierced eyes, hunks of his flesh torn off, and the class got real quiet, and then he just quoted a scripture, in as much as you've done it to the least of these my brothers, you've done it unto me. How you treat another human being is how you love God. And of all the places in our life where someone should feel the dignity and respect ought to be the church. That's not always the case. Because we have people that come to church on any given Sunday, walk in and walk out, and nobody says hi. Nobody greets them. Nobody asks them how they're doing. Because we're kind of focused on my life, what I want to get out of the sermon, my personal worship. And yet you could do that online in many ways. We're here as a family. And see, you can look around this room, and you'll see people that says, I don't know who that is over there. I've never met those. They look like they're new people. Yeah. You should get to know them. They are people God loves and whom he wants to adopt into his family.